0: Lately in uh, the Booker household, our youngest who just turned six, Claire, has um, developed a a deep, deep love for stories. And all Claire wants to do is get uh, curled up on the couch and read a book or have her mom or her daddy read her a book. And uh, she's learning to read and to write right now as well. And so she's actually taken up the um the practice of writing stories and illustrating stories as well and what i wanted to do to start tonight was just to share with you a story that claire wrote this week so that's coming up here uh this is the butterfly um authored and illustrated by claire booker this is the story once there was a butterfly that butterfly died on her first day of her life her family was sad she died because a car ran over her but she came back alive. She got to see her family again. And that was happy. Wasn't that a happy ending? <laughs> the end. <laughs> well done, Claire. Well done. Uh, uh, how about that theme of death and resurrection? Did you catch that? I was happy about that. Uh, indeed. Um, you know, Claire's current love of stories uh, is really a part of every one of us as a human being. We love a good story, and, uh, and that runs deep inside of us. We're always searching uh, for a good story. Reporters, filmmakers, authors, literary agents, they're all looking for the next greatest story, and we're eagerly ready to consume it when we have the opportunity it's actually interesting that our preferred term for newspaper articles is stories. You know, the, the top of Google News is top stories. I'm not sure that's the best word, but it's the word that we use. Um, and here's a list of some of the latest headlines in the Boston Globe. Obama weighs action on Russian hacks. Trump names three to cabinet. Red flags, preceded T's failed $25 million uh, bet. CIA finds Russia worked to aid Trump. An American hero above and beyond. That was about John Glenn. Uh, horrified bystanders watch as train hits car. Hackers hit over a billion accounts in 2013, Yahoo says. Uh, and this one makes me think of the state where I grew up. This was a headline a couple of days ago. With growing acceptance, pot is now legal. Um, we follow the state of Colorado in that sad news. So as important and consequential as some of these stories are on a macro and a micro level, and notice uh, that those headlines touch on themes of power, money, fame, adventure, safety, security, and pleasure. And none of them come close, though, even though they touch on these things, to approximating the importance, the relevance, the world-altering nature of the story that we are engaged in telling here tonight through our readings. This is a story that's so grand and so big, so true, a story whose themes are so relevant that no other story that's ever been told or ever will be told can compare with this story. It's a story whose climactic events 2,000 years ago uh, are yet present in in their power, in the present reality and impact upon our world and our lives in an undeniable way. And it's a story whose gloriously happy ending, which is even happier than the ending of Claire's resurrected butterfly, is yet to come. It's in our future, as we've been focused on during the Advent season. So with that kind of setup, we might be surprised at the details as they begin to unfold. And what I want to do short briefly is just look at observe one of the realities of this story as it presents itself, particularly in Luke 1 that Savannah just read for us, and then I want to think about two implications of this for us from this story. So we began telling the story tonight with humanity's descent into the bondage of sin, and then we saw God's provision of a substitute in Genesis 22 foreshadowing his greater substitute and his promise of a future king who will bring about a reign of peace and justice and righteousness that lasts forever. But that story, then, with laser-like focus, takes us to a small town in Palestine, Nazareth in Galilee, and to an unknown and obscure couple, the carpenter Joseph and his fiancée, Mary, the woman to whom he was betrothed. We would have expected, on the other hand, with a story that claims to be so grand and so cosmic, world councils, world leaders, at least perhaps the Roman Senate, to be informed, to take notice that the God of heaven and earth, the Creator God, was on the move. We would have expected headlines, but we get nothing of the sort. Instead, we get, by divine design, the story focused on a humble, yet-to-be-married couple that nobody knows and that nobody, at least nobody in the big city life of Jerusalem, probably cares about. It's an interesting detail, the obscurity. Our obsession with the famous, with the big, with the grand, with the importance, with the flashy and sophisticated in our world, that obsession is wonderfully And I say that purposefully, wonderfully rebuked by the story that God tells. Here, an angel with a simple young woman initiates the salvation of the world. In this obscure place with this obscure couple, the angel Gabriel, sent from no obscure being, from God himself, tells Mary that she will bear a son. His name will be Jesus, meaning Yahweh saves, and he will be great God will give him the throne of his father David, verse 32 of Luke 1, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The promises of Isaiah, the angel is saying, and those who knew their scriptures would know that these were directly what he was saying. Those promises will be fulfilled, and that fulfillment will begin now. Mary, naturally, a bit taken back by this, wonders how this will be since she and Joseph are not yet married. And she is told that she will become pregnant by the power of the Most High, who will overshadow her, and that this child will then be called holy, the Son of God. She's then told that her relative Elizabeth, who is also pregnant, miraculously so, and I should say as an aside, God is in the business of bringing life out of death, That's his fundamental trade. And then this line that I love, for nothing, the angel says, will be impossible with God. And then Mary, in this gigantic and forever memorable act of faith, takes God at his word, offers him herself, this obscure young woman that she is, for God's world-changing, miraculous service. We'll soon read... In a few minutes about an obscure birth in the stable and about an obscure group of men the shepherds an obscure class of people who are the first to learn of this birth of the new king of course the heavens are rejoicing and we get a glimpse into those heavens as we'll read about in luke 2 but what the angels see so clearly went largely unnoticed by the power players of the day Herod is the exception that proves the rule, of course, as we'll read in Matthew 2, but his response is one of opposition and rejection rather than of joy. To Herod and to the self-impressed and important throughout history, a new king who claims allegiance, who asks for allegiance, demands allegiance, is not a reality to be welcomed, but rather a rival to be rejected. So what I want to say is we shouldn't let our familiarity with this story that we tell again and again at Christmas time blind us to just how astonishing this small detail is, that the great God of the universe initiates his worldwide rescue through an unknown couple in an unknown place. This isn't the way that you or I would write the story. It's not the way that you or I would have come up With a plan to rescue the world and the fact that this baby baby would grow up and die in the most humiliating and shameful way possible on a roman cross and that this death would be the most celebrated act of his followers all of this should tell us that god doesn't play by our rules that god's kingdom is fundamentally different than the kingdoms of this world His is not a kingdom that privileges the wealthy and the powerful. His is not a kingdom that has room only for winners. His is not a kingdom of the upwardly mobile and the educated alone. He chose ordinary and unschooled men, we're told in Acts 4, to be in his inner circle. The signs that this is not a normal kingdom are all over the ministry of Jesus as it develops, And these signs are flashing at us in neon yellow right here at his birth, too, in this obscure town to this obscure couple. So why? That's the observation, obscurity. What can we make of that observation about this story? The first thing is that God is saying to humanity, I don't need you. I don't need your kingdoms, and your powers, and your plans, and your ingenuity, and your wisdom, and your money, and your importance, and your positions. And so he goes to a place of obscurity, where none of those things were, and begins his great rescue work. And at the same time, as he says, well, I don't need you, what do we find That God chooses, by his humility, by his grace, by his mercy, I should say, most accurately, God chooses to use the simple acts of surrender in obscurity to produce his great plan of salvation. I don't need the high and the mighty. And if you look on in Luke 1 and 2, Mary's song celebrates this fact that God is bringing down the proud from their high position and lifting up the humble from their low estate. It's this work of reversal that Luke's gospel begins to, to, to flesh out for the rest of the gospel. And God is saying, look, I don't need your positions and your power. I don't need you to contribute to the work that I'm doing, but I will use you, the lowly, the humble, who say, let it be to me according to your word. Here am I. Send me, Isaiah says in Isaiah 6. And Mary's words echo that here in Luke 1. Let it be to me according to your word. I don't need you, but I will invite you in to the building of this upside-down, beautiful kingdom. Come and be a part of this with me. And by saying this, it brings our focus off of ourselves, off of what we have to contribute to this story, and onto the God who has done it all. The angels say in Luke 2, glory to God in the highest. God receives the glory when God chooses to act and subvert our human importance. The second thing to draw out from this detail of obscurity is that this is what we would expect when this kingdom is being built, inaugurated, and established by a God of unending, everlasting love. In our kingdoms, love is a commodity of exchange based upon the value that we can bring to the kingdoms of which we are a part based on our merits based on our accept uh, on our importance based on our value based on our accomplishments and we all know what this is like and it's easy for this story to kind of be woven into us deeply you are loved because of blank what you do the way that you look what you have accomplished. And that leads to the kind of doling out of uh, the, 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 the distribution of different kinds of honors and accolades that lead to a, a very tiered kind of kingdom, the haves and the have-nots. Not, have but in God's choice of obscurity, it's a subtle way for God to say, that I love indiscriminately. This love is communicated through this choice to work outside the spotlight. Because love, by definition, is given indiscriminately on the basis of the lover, not on the basis Of something in the beloved. And God, through the extended arms of this baby that grow up and land as extended arms on a cross, is extending his love to all indiscriminately. The thief who hangs beside him, the prostitutes who walked around with him, the tax collectors with whom he dined, the kings to whom he sent the great Apostle Paul, and so on. There would be no distinction in this kingdom that God was inaugurating in this obscure town through this obscure couple. The important and the unimportant, the educated and the uneducated, the rich and the poor, all are offered this freeness of God's love. And what I want to say is, Uh, What a balm this is to those of us who feel obscure, which is the vast majority of us, if not, I would say, all of us. God sees deeply, and he doesn't see how we see. Imagine how Mary and Joseph, after the angel left, glowed with life, at the fact that the God of the universe, who could have used so many other more worthy objects to accomplish his purposes, had seen them, called them, drawn near to them. This is his work, a work of love. And we see it witnessed right in the beginning through this detail of obscurity. So he says, I don't need you, but I will use you by my mercy. And secondly, I love you. The story that we tell is a story of the love of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, prevailing over every enemy, over all evil, and over death itself. In Steinbeck's book, East of Eden, Adam's servant, Lee, is in a conversation with Samuel Hamilton another family in the book, reflecting on the story of Cain and Abel from Genesis 4. And this is what Lee says. He says, The greatest terror a child can have is that he is not loved, and rejection is the hell he fears. I think everyone in the world, to a large or small extent, has felt rejection. And with rejection comes anger, and with anger, some kind of crime, in revenge for the rejection. And with the crime, guilt. And there is the story of mankind. I think that if rejection could be amputated, the human would not be what he is. The story that we're telling tonight is the amputation of rejection in the deepest way possible. That God would choose to work in obscure places, through obscure people, in order to demonstrate that his love reaches to every place and to all of us who feel at times rejected. The singing, the joy, the rejoicing that come out of this greatest story ever told. Our singing and joy and rejoicing that we can take up as a people whatever our position in this world and its kingdoms. Knowing that in the story of God there are no obscure people There are no obscure places. But living where you are, God sees you. God loves you. God knows you. And if you would have it, like Mary, God will come to live inside of you and to advance his kingdom of love through you. Amen.